please turn with me to Amos, the ninth chapter, the last chapter of this uh, prophecy. Been away from it for a while. Um, but we're going to uh, spend some time in it this morning and bring this very brief survey of Amos to a close. Amos 9, beginning at verse 11. And I want you to listen. Uh, I want you to listen for the sound of the music. I want you to listen for the wonders and the glories that await those who belong to Jesus. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the Teton range, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Let's pray. Lord uh, Jesus, to that we would say, bring it soon. Uh, we praise you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you give to us in it. I pray for your people this morning that by your word and spirit, their hearts would be encouraged. Uh, Lord, uh, by your word and spirit, may this be a time of sober reflection. But may it be as well a time of deep, deep joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It has been a few weeks since we looked at Amos, so I want to try to get us... Uh, back engaged with Amos, back uh, sort of ramped up with Amos. Uh, who is Amos? Some of you may think that Amos has got a partner and his name is Andy, but that's not, that's not the Amos that uh, is in view here. Amos was a prophet, and I think probably the first thing to say about Amos or any other prophet is that these prophets uh, are to be very much distinguished from People like Nostradamus and Gene Dixon, they're not that kind of prophet. Now, they do engage at times in forecasting the future, in foretelling the future. But what prophets are above everything else are media, the means by which the one true God conveys eternal truth to his people. They're the means by which God communicates truth to his people. And Amos was one of those. 
Uh, and Amos was from the southern tribe of Judah. You don't have time to go through the whole history. But at this particular time, there were two kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, two tribes in the south and ten in the north. And Amos grew up, if you will, in the southern kingdom, but his concern, his prophetic ministry, focused on the ten northern tribes, on the kingdom of Israel. And he exercised his ministry in about the middle of the 8th century B.C., we'll just say 750, just as a kind of a ballpark number, not long actually before the destruction of the northern kingdom, which he prophesies in his prophecy. But at the time of his ministry, it was a period of political stability. Nobody could see it coming. Nobody but Amos. It was also a time of prosperity, material prosperity. But in the midst of this time of political stability and peace, a time of material prosperity, there was the exploitation of the poor, and there was radical self-indulgence, and there was, at least in the sight of God, a formalism in religion, a formalism about the religious life of Israel that was offensive. It was offensive. All of this stuff was offensive. And if you've read, and I hope you have, and by the way, you need to read Hosea for next week because he's the next prophet that we're going to deal with. But if you've read through Amos, you just hear these recurring criticisms, this theme of of correction that comes from God regarding all of these things, the exploitation of the poor, self-indulgence, and religious formalism. It's all there in Amos, and God is not pleased with it. And Amos is the mouthpiece of God by which God speaks to the northern tribes. And what Amos is doing is reminding them of how God has dealt with them in the past, that God is really there, that he is holy, that he's righteous, that he's just, And that he is not somebody to be trifled with. He just isn't somebody to be trifled with. He's holy and he's just and he's righteous. And there's a sense in which that makes him really scary. (laughs) Really scary. So what we've seen so far, if you'll go back a few weeks, is that in the first section of this book... God thunders through Amos. He is the lion who is roaring. That's chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 3, verse 8. And what we looked at was the reality of God's wrath. Eight times in that first chapter and into the second chapter, eight different times is this recurring phrase, I will not revoke the punishment, or I will not turn back my wrath. Remember, wrath is the outward manifestation of God's righteous anger and indignation in the presence of real and objective moral evil. And I, you know, I said to you, and I, I mean, this is, this is not a message that goes down well in our culture, where really everybody wants God to be a hot tub. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, you know, everybody wants God to be a hot tub. Well, Trust me, God is the best hot tub you will ever encounter. But God is righteous and just. And what I try to encourage us to think about is the fact that that's a good thing. There is somebody in the universe who cares about right and wrong. 
Now, what makes it scary is that he is also infinitely powerful. And because he is both infinitely righteous and infinitely powerful, that whole deal becomes kind of scary. Because God will, he just will not allow wrongdoing and unrighteousness to be swept under the rug. He'll deal with it. And we should be glad in that. We should be thankful for that. And that's what we've seen. We're reminded of God's wrath. We're reminded that there are reasons for God's wrath. And we're reminded that the response to God's wrath is to repent. There you go, nicely alliterated. The reality of wrath, the reasons for wrath, and the response to wrath, which is to repent, to turn away, and to find security and safety by our repentance in God himself. And then in the second section, chapter 3, verse 9, through chapter 6, verse 14, there is portrayed, ironically perhaps, uh, in, in our minds, there is portrayed for us the ever-gracious God. I mean, through those chapters, he is complaining against Israel. He complains against Israel because of their unrighteousness. And he chastises them four times in that section. Four times there are these references, extended references, to God's chastisement against Israel. There are lean times. There are drought times. There are natural disasters and all the rest. And all of this is designed to call Israel to seek the Lord and to return to him. So he is ever gracious. Even when he is complaining against Israel and chastising them, he is always calling them back to himself that they might know life. This is the nature of the God of the Bible. God is not this cosmic grandfather who just says boys will be boys and girls will be girls and sweep this stuff under the rug. You don't want a God like that. I know this raises questions for you. You know, my goodness, God is terrifying if he's really like this. Well, yes, he is. But honestly, you want a God like this. You want a God who is just. You want a God who is powerful. You don't want God looking at those who have perpetrated incredible atrocities against other human beings across the whole of human history and saying about them, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, and sweeping it all under the rug. The rub is, this is the rub. You want God to deal justly with all unrighteousness, except whose? Your own. But see, God is no respecter of persons in that, in that regard. He is wholly just and righteous. And he will visit his judgment upon unrighteousness wherever he finds it. Now, that's the stuff that you find in these first two sections of Amos' prophecy. And I, I will confess to you, it's tough to read Amos and the other minor prophets because this is so much a part of their ministry is to remind us who God is and what God is about. But I want to encourage you that you not turn away from Amos because in this last section, in this third section of his prophecy, there is the prospect, this incredible prospect of restoration. Now, there are two things that emerge from this last section of this prophecy. Chapter 7, verse 1, and through the end of chapter 9. There are two things. 
But one of the things, and it's a little bit harder to see, but really it is there, and it's there in technicolor, and you get hints of it in the first few verses of chapter 7. What you see is evidence of God's limitless compassion, his limitless kindness, and his determination to restore. His determination to restore. That's one of the things you see. Again, Amos, and I want to look at this particular passage some more this evening before our prayer time. Amos, very much following in the footsteps of Moses, Amos cries out, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. He cries out to the Lord, and look at what he says. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. He is so impotent. He is so powerless. He is so little. If you, Lord God, were to stand against him and you were to visit his judgment, your judgment upon him, it would exterminate him. It would extinguish him. He has no power to resist. He's so puny. He's so small. He's so little. And then he says it again in verses 4 through 6. And the Lord's response in both cases, the Lord relented and said, it shall not be. It shall not be. It shall not be. And that is the first note really in this prophecy, this first note of the hope of restoration. Now, right alongside that, there is this other thing. So there are two things that come out of this particular portion of Amos' prophecy. Let me deal with the first of them first and the second of them second. The first of them is don't minimize the gravity of the threat. Don't minimize the gravity of the threat. I suppose this is just saying again what we've already said and what has already been presented pretty clearly in Amos' prophecy. The threat is real and it is grave. Don't soften it. Don't downplay it. Don't dismiss it. The threat is real. You know, sometimes I joke with this in this church that in order to be a Christian, you have to be radically bipolar. You know, we're always trying to find a convenient and comfortable middle between things that seem to be extremes. You, you can't do that if you're going to be a Christian. You've got to take God in the extremes. Don't try to find some safe and secure middle that you can manage and you can control. You're going to find yourself trying to hold on to the tail of a tiger and you can't hold on to the tail of a tiger. Don't diminish or minimize the gravity of the threat. What is being threatened in Amos' prophecy? Well, it is exile that is being threatened. Throughout the second section, that is what God is threatening through Amos. He is threatening his people with exile, being cast out of the land, being cast away from his presence. Keep in mind what's going on here. This land is the holy land. And in the midst, right in the heart of the holy land, is the temple where the holy God has been pleased for his name to dwell. 
But you see, the people who are supposed to be a holy people inhabiting the holy land and worshiping the holy God have become unholy. And so they're being threatened with expulsion. They're being threatened with exile. Amos 6, 7. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And when the exile comes, and I'll just give you the verses for reference, when the exile comes, it will be cruel. It will not be clean and neat and tidy and polite. Amos 8, 8. The solid land will tremble. It will feel like earthquakes beneath your feet. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Feasts will become funerals. Songs of joy will become songs of grief and lamentation. Humiliation and degradation will come to everyone. It's not going to be pretty. And it actually was fulfilled. And the greatest tragedy in all of this is verses 11 through 14 of chapter 8. The people will look for God. They will seek after God. They will look for a word from God, a sign of hope from God, and there will only be silence. There will only be silence. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, verse 12, chapter 8, but they shall not find it. Silence. No word of comfort, no word of hope. It's a severe threat. It's serious what God is seeking to communicate through Amos. Now, what's interesting and important to remember about this is that this is exactly what God had warned Israel. This should not come as a surprise to Israel. That a holy God who has sought to create a holy land for a holy people to dwell in so that they might worship and delight in a holy God that that holy God would warn his people because he loves them so much that if they should become unholy, he would actually cast them out of the land. That's 2 Chronicles 7, 20, in the days of Solomon, 200 years before these events. If you turn aside and forsake my statutes, God says, I will pluck you out of the land. And hundreds of years before that, and this is graphic, hundreds of years before that, Leviticus 18.26, God admonishes his people, admonishes the nation Israel to keep the statutes and to do none of the abominations of the peoples around them. Now, if you want to know what some of those abominations were, just go back to Amos Chapter 2, verse 6 and following. And read the practices that the nation Israel was engaged in. They had begun to engage in the practices of the Canaanites, oppressing the poor, that's bad enough, trampling the heads of the poor into the dust, that's bad enough. But beyond that, verse 7, a man and his father go into the same girl, and so my holy name is profaned. And not only do they do that, but they do it alongside the altars. These are not trifles, folks, that a holy God is pointing out to his people And in Leviticus 18, God had said, you shall keep my statutes and do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you 
That's the graphic part. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean. See again, God is no trifle. He is holy. He is holy. The sons of Aaron understood that, learned it the hard way. Aaron himself learned it the hard way. Go read Leviticus 10. It's the story of Nadab and Abihu taking strange fire into the presence of God before the altar of God, and fire leapt out from that altar and destroyed Nadab and Abihu. And Moses, speaking to Aaron, said, This is what the Lord says, Among those who draw near to me, I will be regarded as holy. And Aaron said nothing. Because he understood. Folks, you can't minimize the gravity of the threat again. There, and we're going to see this. There is no more safe, secure place than the presence of Almighty God. That's down here. It's off the charts comfortable and safe. But there is this reality about the nature of God that he is not to be trifled with. And that is what God is communicating through Amos. And it is because God is holy that exile is threatened, that God repeatedly comes to the nation and warns them, and then and then at the end of the day, executes judgment against his people. Now this theme of exile, this theme of banishment, this theme of being cast out of a holy land, out of the presence of God, it should, it should flip some switches in your brains because the very same thing happened back in Genesis when an unholy people were banished from the presence of God, cast out of the land and made to be wanderers in a place that was not safe. And actually, the reality of this kind of exile finds a greater fulfillment in the presence of Jesus himself. Now, look, I look around, I see the faces in this. I, I know you folks. I trust you understand I trust you understand all I'm doing is telling you what the Bible says. (laughs) I'm telling you because I love you, and I'm telling you because somehow I so long for all of us with straight and sober faces to be able to say these things to our neighbors and say, look, God is really there, and God is really righteous, and he's really holy, and there is a larger and greater fulfillment to this idea of banishment and exile than you see in Israel or even in Adam and Eve, and that is in the presence of Jesus when would-be professors, false professors, would come before Jesus and would say, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? Didn't we do works in your name? Didn't we honor you? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do the other thing? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. I hope we understand the day is coming when Jesus, the source of all comfort, will gather all of the nations, all of the people of every race and nation and tribe and tongue. He will gather them before himself and there will be a great separation. And there will be those among those who are separated from his true people 
who will think that they were his true people and they will say, wait a minute, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And Jesus will say, you may have been in church every week, you may have been baptized, you may have done nice things, but I never knew you depart from me. And that's the greater exile. And we can't diminish it, folks, in this in these days of hot tub religion. We can't diminish it because it is very much at the core of what the Bible teaches about the nature of God and the purpose of God. So we do not diminish or minimize the gravity of this threat. But, okay, we do not diminish it. And by saying, but, we do not diminish it. But we say, while you cannot minimize or diminish the reality of the threat, the gravity of the threat, so we cannot afford to minimize the glory of the promise, the wonder of the promise. And that's what you find in verses 11 through 15. Here in verses 11 through 15, you find a description of the restoration of Israel. But let me be very clear with you about this. This description of the restoration of Israel goes way beyond what happened after the exile and people came back from the exile and built a puny little temple. Go read Ezra and Nehemiah and you will find in Ezra and Nehemiah that those who had seen the previous temple wept when they saw the restored temple because it didn't even begin to touch the glory of the previous temple. They wept. That's the best you can do. And Amos would say, no, that's not the best you can do. There is a restoration that extends way beyond what happened when those exiles came back under the rule and reign of Cyrus and built their puny little temple. It is a restoration that is described here in these verses. There are three things about it. Things do come in threes, waves, points in a sermon, the Trinity. Really, there are more than three, but I'll just give you three really quickly. Look at this restoration of Israel. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The booth of David. This is a strange phrase. It's the only time it's used in all the prophetic literature. The booth of David. What is the booth of David? Well, the connection is to the Feast of Booths. Remember the Feast of Booths? This is so cool. It's one of three feasts that Israel, main feasts that Israel celebrated every year. They'd come around. Oh, it's the Feast of Booths again. Oh, it's the three feasts year after year after year after year. The first of them was the Feast of what? Passover. The Feast of Deliverance. The Feast of Deliverance from Bondage that recalled their hardship in Egypt under a brutal oppressor. Ah, the feast of Passover, liberation, exodus. And what was the next feast? Feast of Pentecost, the feast of first fruits, the first taste of the harvest. 
Remember, this is an agrarian society. They celebrate things like this. It's a big deal when the first of the crops are harvested. It's a big deal when the weather has been such that you can actually gather in those first crops, first crops because what that promises is a future greater harvest. And that future and greater harvest is the feast of final ingathering, the feast of booths where, where folks would they'd go camping in the woods and they'd build these little huts and they would have a party for a week. A week-long party. And you know who commanded it? God did. God commanded the party. God commanded that the people enjoy the fruit and bounty of the final harvest. What is the booth of David that has fallen? In that day I will raise it up, that final harvest that final ingathering. And notice that it is the booth of David. Who is David? David's the king. So what is this a promise of, right? It's a promise that the greater David is going to come. And when the greater David comes, he's going to bring with him the greater harvest, the fullness of the harvest, the consummation. These things are woven together in Isaiah. Let's make a note of these verses. Isaiah 4, verse 2, and then Isaiah 11. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The branch that is beautiful, the branch that is the fruit of the land. And then a little bit later, and there will be a booth, a booth for shade, shade from the heat. And it will be a shelter from rain and the storm. The branch gets woven into a booth and the booth becomes a place of safety. And so the branch is both the fruit of the land and the final harvest and the fullness of it. And he is also the shelter from the storm. And then Isaiah 11, there shall come forth from the stump of Jesse a shoot and a branch. And he shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Don't you love how all these metaphors sort of get woven together and you try to pull them apart and it just gets confusing? Is the branch the shelter or is he the branch? Is he the fruit or is he the fruit bearer? He's all of those things. He's the greater David who becomes a shelter from the heat and from the storms and who himself is the harvest and who himself brings forth a harvest. All of it woven together. And then look at verse 12. This booth, this place of protection, this place of safety will not just be for Israel. Aren't you glad about this? It's not just for Israel. It's not just for the Jews. But it's for Edom. Look at that. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. If you're living at the time of Amos and you read this, you think to yourself, what in the world is he saying? Because Edom was the arch enemy of Israel. 
Edom was the first nation that wouldn't allow the Israelites to pass through it on their way to the Holy Land. And Edom came to be symbolic with worldliness and everything that stood over against the one true God. Go read Isaiah 34. I know I'm giving you a lot of assignments, but if you're going to get all of this stuff, you've got to read these passages. Go read Isaiah 34, which portrays the world using Edom as the name for the world. Amazing. This isn't only for you, Israel. This is for Edom, and it's for all the nations of the world. And that is why when Paul and Barnabas came back from their missionary journey, their first missionary journey, and the church called a big council in Acts chapter 15, and Paul told them what the gospel was that was being preached, that it was going to the Gentiles, and they were saying to the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised to be a part of the church. You only have to have Jesus. And this became a conflict in the church back in Jerusalem because they loved circumcision and they loved the law and they had to demonstrate before the church that Jesus was sufficient. And James stands up in the midst of the assembly and he cites this passage as being fulfilled in the life of the church. The nations being gathered in, the booth of David being rebuilt. And God being glorified by all of it. Wow. So what that means is that what is described here finds its fulfillment in the book of Acts and down to this present time. And then you look third, and this is the best part of the whole deal. You look down at verses 13 to 15, and I, boy, I wish we had time just to unpack this, but we don't. Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. What is that all about? What that's saying is the time of harvest will be so bountiful that the reapers will not have time to gather it all in before the sowers start sowing again. Get out of the way, reapers. It's time to sow. We can't get out of the way. There's more to harvest. There's more to gather in. And then I love this one. Having just been in the Tetons and having seen these freshwater streams flowing down from these snow-capped peaks. Ah! Cabernet, Merlot. I don't know, probably white wines too. And I joked with somebody the other day that you could go to Grand Teton Mountain and you could stick a tap inside of that thing and pour the best beer out of those mountains that you've ever tasted. <laughs> what are these things? These are signs of the fullness, the fruitfulness, and the abundance of the kingdom. The kingdom pulsating with life, pulsating with blessing. So what do you have? You have the king, you have the nations, and you have the blessing of God upon all it, all of it, in immeasurable fullness. That's the promise. And you've got to ask the question, how do you get from this gravity of warning, of judgment to this glorious blessing. You know the answer, don't you? You get there through the cross. 
Because at the cross, both of these realities embrace the holiness of God in all of his just and righteous wrath against sin is visited upon Jesus, the sin-bearer, who by his death secures the blessings that are described in these verses. The threat is real, but you see the threat has been satisfied at the cross for those who will come to the cross and cling to the cross and hold to the cross. And in doing that, the glory of the promise and the blessings of it all belong to them as well. How do you get from the threat of judgment to this glorious promise of blessing? One way where these two things meet at the cross of Jesus Christ set before us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have woven yourself into the fabric of this prophecy of Amos. You the branch, you the booth, you the fruit of the land, you the one who brings forth fruit by recreating a people from every nation and race and tribe and tongue who will be gathered into the booth to enjoy its safety and to enjoy the blessedness of it. Lord, as we come to this table this morning, would you give us a taste, those of your people, those of your people here in this place, would you give us a taste of these blessings awaiting us in the final consummation of all things. We ask in your name. Amen. Let me have you stand and we'll sing just the first verse of 420. As we prepare our hearts, ready ourselves to gather at the Lord's table, number 420.